Please stand for the reading of the Lord's Word. Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge were committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to reign and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right, good morning, everybody. It's doing all right? There's a cheerful passage for you on the Sunday before Christmas, huh? Okay, here's the thing. Let's talk about that, actually. Came home, uh, I guess it was I don't know, a week or two ago, somewhat of a disturbing sight. Came home, and on our counter was an advent calendar for dogs. And it was an advent, one of those advent calendars, and you open it up, and there's little do- little treats in there for, for dogs for each day, I guess, during, during the advent season. Right? Apparently, this is the thing now. I didn't know this, but this is the thing. There's advent calendars for everything. You can get advent calendars uh, for different perfume scents, and you open up one each day, and you get a little perfume new thing. Or you can open up, you can get advent calendars for uh, I'll start with coffee flavors, or you can even get big advent calendars for craft beers. You open it up, and there's a new beer bottle in there each day of advent. You can even get advent calendars where you open it up, and each day there's a new picture of a dog relieving himself in the backyard. But apparently, this is a thing, and people are into this or whatever. I don't know, but. The disturbing part of this for me is that, oh, come on, are you kidding me? Advent now has gone commercial, right? We, we've known 
whatever, for how long, that Christmas has long since gone commercial, right? That ship has sailed. But Advent was always, I don't know, this special, uniquely Christian season of the year that was set apart for uniquely Christian, I don't know, activities and perspectives and stuff. But now Advent itself has gone commercial, apparently, too. Okay, and so as, you, as I was thinking about this, I think part of the reason for this actually might, or, or some of the blame for this might actually fall on the church, and that the broader American church uh, in recent times has shifted the focus of Advent. Uh, we now are perhaps more in the custom of thinking of Advent as that season of time where we are looking forward to Christmas. And we are looking forward to celebrating the birth of Christ into the world 2,000 years ago. Okay, but historically, since the earliest days of Christianity, actually Advent was something different than that. The worship services, the prayers, the festivities were more aimed at looking forward to the day when this Christ who entered into the world 2,000 years ago would come back to restore all things, right? to judge and to make every wrong right. right. That's why a lot of your Advent hymns, if you were, which we actually don't know so much because we're more into singing the Christmas carols, but the Advent hymns don't look backwards. They look forward where the Christmas carols look, tend to look backwards. That's how you know the difference between a Christmas carol and an Advent carol. And we've been trying to introduce a little bit more of the Advent carols. But anyway, so... This whole looking forward to Christ's judgment, um, well, that's not so pleasant, not so cozy. We'd rather look at, you know, Jesus coming. Right? Or I was reading this one guy this week. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. He was a Puerto Rican guy. Um, but uh, anyway, he said part of the reason that Advent has shifted is because we're not so, we don't look at the judgment of Christ as good news. And that's something unique in church history for a thousand, for a couple, hundreds of years of church history. The coming judgment of Christ, where all things were brought into the light and all things were judged and all the wrong things were made right. That was incredibly good news. But for the church throughout the ages, the day when Christ would come and deal once and for all with the powers of darkness, with Satan himself, with the power of death, with the power of Hades, with the power of sin and evil and violence and injustice. Like when Christ, like that was something that the church longed for and looked forward to, right? And so actually, uh, I think it's perhaps providential that here on this last Sunday of Advent, uh, we have this passage where it is dealing precisely with that. It is dealing precisely with the judgment against Satan. And did you pick it up? It's dealing precisely with the judgment against death and Hades. Or, as it's translated elsewhere in the New Testament, death and hell itself. Where we're coming for the judgment where evil, all remnants and all traces of evil are being fished out and gathered together and themselves are being judged and removed from God's good creation. And I guess part of the point that I want to make today is that this is really good news. It's not good news that God would 
necessarily come and judge sinners, but for the through, throughout history, right, this incredible news that Christ would come, deal with his enemies, deal with the power of Satan and death and hell and the power of sin and evil and violence and wickedness, call it for what it is, bring it to the light, and remove it from his creation. Man, this is good news all the way through. And that's what this passage is all about. At base level, this is the judgment of the great dragon. Okay, if you're new with us this morning, I feel a little bad for you (laughs) because you're jumping into the book of Revelation and to one of the more loaded passages in the whole book. But if I could simplify just a little bit, we've been in this latter portion of the book of Revelation where we've been introduced to these shady characters, right? The harlot riding on the back of a beast, another land beast, and this dragon. And we've been systematically in these last few chapters seeing how Christ in the end is going to deal with these shady characters, the way he judges the harlot, the way he judges the beast from the sea, the way he judges the beast from the land. And then today is that climactic judgment where he deals with the greatest enemy, the dragon, and the weapons of death and Hades that he wields. Okay? This is at some or at base level what this passage ultimately is all about. And this passage, I would argue, is good news precisely because it's getting rid of God's enemies and the forces of evil and violence and justice. It's also, man, it's also a passage about those drag- that dragon's activities being restricted in the days leading up to that. More good news. Uh, this is a passage about God's preservation of his people. Right, The forces of evil and violence and hatred gather around the camps of God's people, yet fire comes from heaven and consumes them, the way it did like in Elijah in the days of the Old Testament. And even those who have suffered, and even those who have suffered death, are participants, uh, not only in the Lamb's book of life, but in the Lamb's resurrection and in the Lamb's uh, enthronement. Right, so this is just a passage that's loaded from beginning to end with good news. And hear me here, the simplest point of this chapter is that God wins. Christ wins against his enemies, and his people are set, kept secure. And because Christ wins against his enemies, man, humanity is set free from the power of Satan, from the power of hell, from the power of death. And it's able to flourish the way it was always intended to. right? Or because God's enemies are being done away with, creation itself is going to be able to be liberated from its bondage, corruption, and decay. Or because Satan and the power of death and hell and violence and wickedness is being removed from God's creation, we are being set up to enter into these glorious final two chapters where every tear is wiped away from every eye and there is no more mourning or sadness or grief because the former things have passed away and behold, all things are being made new. Okay? So here's the thing. We could close it up right right there. (laughs) We could close up shop there and we could say, look, here's the basic message of this chapter. Whereas the dragon... Or sorry, whereas the beast one and beast two and the harlot were all judged and removed from God's creation, so now at long last is the dragon. And with him goes the power of death. And with him goes the power of Hades. And with him goes the power of all violence and evil and wickedness. And this is great news. And this is motivation in and of itself for us to persevere in hope and to live godly and faithful lives while we wait on that great day. 
Amen? <laughs> we could close it up here. We could go home with that, with some encouragement and good news, and take that, and, and nobody gets hurt, <laughs> and nobody's theological toes get stepped on or anything like that, and we could call it a day. And some of you are sitting there and saying, yes and amen, make it so. <laughs> but there's others among you who are saying, no, 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 you don't get off that easy. <laughs> there are others who are saying, this is one of the more difficult passages in the whole book of Revelation. This is one of the passages that keeps me from diving deep into the book of Revelation. This is one of those passages where I've heard so many discussions and so many debates, and I've even seen so many divisions over this passage. You don't get, oh, you don't get, get off that easy <laughs> just walking away. I'm sure there's some of you that, Ray, am I, Ray, are you, are you, you with me on that? All right, good. So if it's, it's, the rest of this is just for Ray, you're going to have to humor him. The rest of you just kind of bear with it. So here's the thing. We're going to dive a little bit deeper this morning. And we're going to try to see a little bit more of what's going on in this passage. Uh, this very difficult and complicated passage that has caused much discussion, much debate. And yes, even though it boggles my mind, much division, even in church in the latter portion of the 20th century, uh, we're going to pick this apart just a little bit, and we're going to do it for a couple reasons. First and foremost, we're going to do it because, if you ask me, the deeper we go in this passage, the more good news we're going to mine out of it. And that's my ultimate goal. I'm going to dig deeper so we can mine out even some more good news from this passage. Two, uh, hopefully you know by now, that I hate that Revelation has got stigmatized over the years and has become this scary book to try to make sense of, and so people just stay away from it because it's probably my favorite book in the Bible. And so I want to try to bring some clarity to this passage as well, too. Right? Okay, but I'm doing this, I'm diving deeper, all the while knowing that, yes, this has been one of the more difficult passages in the book, going all the way back to the earliest days of the church. The church throughout all of history, starting from day one, has had different ways of how, to, what do we make sense of chapter 20? And so I'm not presuming to tell you the definitive authoritative one if the church throughout history, led by the Spirit, has come to some different conclusions. I'm not going to presume that mine is the authoritative one. I'm going to try to give you uh, the one that has been the majority view throughout history, but whatever, you can take or leave that. Um, and again, I want to do it sensitively, knowing that this passage has caused much debate and discussion and even division. Some of you are wondering, what's the big problem? Well, let's get into it, okay? So chapter 20 here, let's talk a little bit more. And as we dive into this, okay, you have to remember the rules of apocalyptic literature. We've got to let apocalyptic literature speak on its own terms and what it is, right? This glorious book through all, with all these symbolic visions, Right? And so we have to let it communicate its truth to us in these visions and in these symbols, right? And this passage is loaded with symbols, right? Satan is not a literal dragon. He's a spiritual being, so he's not a physical dragon. The chains that he's getting bound with are not physical, literal chains, or the abyss that he's being thrown to is not a physical, literal abyss, right? These are symbolic characters, symbolic places, and I would argue even symbolic numbers that we see uh, throughout this passage, okay? But what has caused so much discussion and, and debate, you, you could argue, could be the very first word in the chapter. Uh, in my English translation, the very first word is, then. Then I saw, okay? 
In the Greek, actually, the word there is chi, which more often is translated and. It could be translated then, but it's just basically this connecting word and. And so here's the question. Is what we have in chapter 20 a continuation of where we left off in chapter 19? Remember the end of chapter 19? Jesus shows up riding on his white horse. He's got the sword coming out of his mouth through which he deals with the beast from the sea and the beast from the land and all of his armies, right? And so is this, and I saw in chapter 20, a continuation of that scene, or is this, and I saw something of a new vision that John is seeing, right? Which would make it a little bit trickier because this is the other thing about apocalyptic literature is that it's a whole bunch of visions that John is seeing and as apocalyptic literature does, these visions don't stack up on each other in a linear sequence, right? But the visions oftentimes cycle back, and they look at a, the same period of history from maybe a slightly different angle, or they give you a different look on the same period of time. So here's the question before us. Is chapter 20 continuing the action where it left off in chapter 19? Or is chapter 20 starting something of a new vision so that we're cycling actually backwards in time? And some of you are saying, why in the world would churches divide over that question? I don't know, but that's, that's the question, okay? You with me on that so far? Oh, man, I'm not seeing any nods. This is going to get dicey. All right, hang in with me here. I'm going to try to plow through this. All things will, this too shall pass. Don't worry. <laughs> So, again, this question has had different, many different perspectives. Surprise, surprise, I am going to share with you why the reasons from the text, well, I think we're actually starting a new vision and we're actually going backwards in time here, okay? And to do that, I want you to actually look at, oh, where is it here? I want you to look at verse 8, and we're going to start here this morning. Verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And here again, in the Greek, I don't know why the English translations don't pick this up, but there's actually a definite article before battle. The battle. They, he's come to gather them for the battle. Tom polemon. The war, more literally. Right? Satan has come, he's deceived the nations, he's gathered them from every four corners of the earth to gather them for the war. Now keep that in mind. If you have your Bibles, if you have your Bible on your phone, pull it up because we're going to go back in the book a little bit. And I want to flip you back to chapter 16, actually. We're diving a little bit deep here, so hang with me. Chapter 16 is the cycle of the bowls. The bowls of God's wrath, right? The judgment cycle of the bowls. And actually, peek back into chapter 15, the beginning of chapter 15, where we get the sort of the prelude to the pouring out of the bowls. And we see these seven angels come, and they each come and they pick up their bowl of God's wrath that they're going to pour out on the earth. And we're told that these are the last, because with them the wrath of God is finished. Right? So when that seventh bowl pours out, there is no more wrath, there is no more judgment of God to be had. That's it. It has all been drained. 
Okay. So then we turn into chapter 16. These bowls start pouring out. Right? You see the bowls of the plagues, which are very similar to the plagues back in Egypt. You remember any of this when we were talking about it a few weeks ago? And then the sixth bowl is poured out. And we see coming out of the mouth of the dragon and the beast from the sea and the beast from the land, these demonic frogs. Raj Lewis has been very curious about these demonic frogs. In fact, he found that that outside the Swarthmore Library is a picture of, or is a statue of apparently a demonic frog. Bells of Bufo. Yeah, and so Raj is out there like studying it anyway. But anyway, so what are these demonic, I don't know why it's out front of a library. We can dive into that later or talk to Raj. But why, what, what's the point of these demonic frogs? What are they doing in chapter 16? Look in verse 14. These demonic spirits are performing signs and they go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle. In the Greek, tom polemon, for the war on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeps his garments on, and doesn't be found naked, and so on. Okay? So these frogs are going out, and they're deceiving the nations, and they're gathering them together for the war of the great day of the Lord. And then the seventh bowl is poured out, and we hear in a loud voice, it's done. And there's lightning, thunder, earthquake, the great cities of the earth fall, and Babylon falls. Okay? That's chapter 16. Chapter 17 and chapter 18, John sees another vision. And the angel says, hey, come here a little bit. Let me, let me, let, let's, let's pull back a little bit and let me show you this Babylon. And we talked about this. Let me show you who this Babylon is, what it's all about. And let me show you a little bit more how Babylon falls. And then we get into chapter 19, which was where we were last week. And at the end of chapter 19, John says he sees another vision. And he sees now the beast. Beast from the sea and the beast from the land. Flip to chapter 19. Look what they do. 19, verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make, guess what? The war against him who was seated on the the horse and against his army. And so then you come into chapter 20. And at the end of chapter 20, what is the dragon himself doing? He's going around and he's deceiving the nations and he's gathering them together to make the war, right? The war of the great day of the Lord. In other words, if you ask me what you have in chapter 16, what you have in chapters actually 17 and 18, and then 19 and 20 is a sort of a description of this war to end all wars from different angles. You're going to go home today. Some of you are going to go home, and you're going to watch the Eagles play the Bears. I'm going to make a prediction. There's going to be at some point during the game where Jalen Hurts is going to take the ball back. He's going to shuffle around. He's going to evade some defenders that are coming in hot and heavy on him, right? And he's going to throw the ball way down the field to Devontae Smith, who's going to manage to have broken free. He's going to catch the ball. He's going to just trample right into the end zone for a touchdown. And after that, you're going to see a whole bunch of replays of that. You're going to see uh, maybe 
uh, one camera angle that's zoomed in on Jalen Hurts, right, as he's shifting and dodging and evading the, uh, the defenders that are coming in, and then he throws the ball. And then you're going to cut away, and you're going to see a scene maybe of one of the defenders from the Bears who missed his assignment and missed Devontae Smith streaking past him, right? And so that's what allowed him to be open and enter into the end zone. Or then maybe you'll get another camera angle that's just all zoomed in on Devontae Smith and the route that he runs ultimately till he catches the ball in the end zone. And here's the thing. I love my girls to death. They're not big football watchers. Some of them are. Some of them are getting better at this. But one of them might very well sit there and say, my goodness, can you believe this? We just scored four touchdowns back to back to back to back. And I might have to explain to them, no, what you just saw there were replays <laughs> from a slightly different angle. Okay? Yeah, Callie, you know. <laughs> anyway, in a similar way, right, as you're working your way through these closing chapters of the book of Revelation, somebody could come up and say, my goodness, look at this. We just had four battles, four great wars where all these nations were gathered. And then another time, all these nations were gathered. And another time, all the kings of the nations were gathered. Where in the world are all these nations coming from? And I would argue, actually, you know what you're getting is their instant replays, right? And you're getting it from a different angle, right? This whole close of the book is zeroing in on the individual judgments against the harlot and then the judgments against the beast and then the judgment against the dragon. And all, all of them, their whole goal is to mount these armies together in the very end for the war to end all wars. And in all times, there's really not even any description of a battle ever takes place. It's either just uh, there's an earthquake and the cities fall or God bree- or Jesus breathes on them from the sword of his mouth and they fall or heaven or fire falls from thunder. Fire falls from heaven and they fall. But do you see what I'm saying? From my perspective, humble estimation, this is one battle, instant replays. Which, which means then that this period of time in chapter 20, this thousand years, is not picking up where we left off, in my view, from chapter 19, but it's actually cycling back and it's showing us a period of time leading up to this great war to end all wars. Again, give me a nod. You with me? I'm not asking for a nod of agreement. I'm just saying, are you with me at this point? <laughs> All right, let me give you one more reason. No, I'm seeing some no's. Oh, boy. <laughs> we'll circle back around. Let me give you one more reason here. And I don't mean to do this to prove a point. I want to give this reason because I think it's, it's really important in, with the text. And now we'll see who's really was paying attention for all these months as we're working through Revelation do you remember, and this is going back into the spring, though we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that if you look at each of the cycles in the book of Revelation, right, the cycles of the seals, and then the cycles of the trumpets, and the cycles of the bowls, you remember us talking and pointing out how in between the sixth and the seventh event in those cycles, there's always a pause. You remember that? There's always like a parenthesis or an interlude. And that interlude is always describing something in relation to the church during that period of time that's taking place in that cycle, right? So if we go back to the seals and you're watching the unfolding of this, or the opening up of the seals, after the sixth one, there's a pause. 
And you hear the voice from heaven calling out to the four angels, hey, go out to the four corners of the earth right now and seal my people. Seal the 144,000. That symbolic number representing the fullness of my people so that when this final judgment comes, they're spared. Or then when you go into the trumpet cycle, trumpet one, two, three, four, five, six, all blow. And then after the six, there's a pause. And we get this interlude where we're, we're shown the church faithfully giving testimony and witness to God and suffering for it, right? Being beaten and left for dead in the middle of the streets. But then the breath of God enters them and they, they, they rise up. And when the nations see that, they turn and they give God glory. And then we get the seventh trumpet. We saw this even in the bowls. There's an abrupt stop in the action after the bowl six, right before bowl seven. Here's the point. Do you know in the book of Revelation, guess how many cycles of judgment there are? Seven. (laughs) Yeah, there's seven of them. You've got the cycle of the seals. You've got the cycle of the trumpets. Or I should say this, not necessarily seven cycles, but seven judgment scenes. Right? The judgments of the seals, the judgments of the trumpets. You've got the judgment of the harvest in chapter 14. And then you have the bowl judgment. And then you see the judgment against the harlot of Babylon. Then you see the judgment against the two beasts. And then here's the final one. The final end all judgment of the dragon. Okay? So, just humor me. Notice what happens in between the sixth and the seventh. There's almost a pause in the action. There's an interlude of a thousand years where we are shown, in part, something that we're meant to see about the church. Namely, that Satan is bound, restricted, walled off in the church. The souls of those who have entered glory are coming to life, and they're reigning with Christ, and they're being kept secure from Satan and the powers of death and Hades. Which is to say, again, if you ask me, in the text, when we turn the page into chapter 20 and we get the story of the thousand years, we're going back in time. And we're being shown from another angle the whole life of the church, the whole history, the whole span of time of the church, of the age of the church, from the resurrection of Christ to his final victory. And we're getting at it from a totally different angle, all leading up to this final battle. Some of you might have found that interesting. Some of you are like, okay, great. What, 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 what's the point of all this? So, I'm, again, what I'm doing is I'm giving you my perspective. Of are we continuing in the action? Or are we going back in time? I'm saying we're going back in time, and we're getting a look from another different angle at the age of the church leading all the way up to this final coming of Christ and the final victory and defeat of the dragon. And for me, this is incredibly good news. If this is true, and it might not be, but if it is, man, there's so much good news in here. I'm going to point out a few things, right? First of all, let's talk about this business of Satan being bound during this age, during this time, this period of time. Well, if you ask me from one angle, what that's saying is, okay, we're now in this stage of time where the gospel can go out and can permeate the nations unhindered by the deceptive, demonic influence of the dragon. 
I have a couple of events in mind, you know, in the life of Jesus where he kind of hints at this. There's a scene in Matthew 12 or Luke 11 where Jesus is going around. He's casting out demons in the Galilee region. And some people come up to him and say, well, I don't know about this guy. He's got authority to cast out demons. He must be an agent or like a sub-ruler of, of Satan himself because he has authority over these demons and he can just kind of come and cast them out and direct them wherever they go. And Jesus has to say, no, 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 no. <laughs> he says, listen, a house divided against itself can't stand. I'm telling you, I'm not working for Satan here. And instead he says this uh, in Matthew chapter 12. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or, he says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. What's Jesus saying? The whole reason I can liberate my people, cast out these demons, is because I've come and I've bound the strong man of the house. So he no longer has that authority anymore. Or think of the closing scene in the book of Matthew where Jesus gathers his disciples together on that hill outside of Jerusalem before he ascends back to the right hand of the Father. And he says to them, okay, actually for the very first time, this is actually a very climactic passage. For the first time, he says, all right, go out now into all the nations and baptize them and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And do you understand this is the first time in the scriptures, we get instruction to go into the nations with the good news of the gospel. Sure, in the Old Testament, Israel was supposed to live as a godly, priestly nation among the nations, but nowhere are we given this express commandment to go into the nations and preach to them the good news. Maybe with Jonah, that's about it. But you don't really get so much of this command. This is the first time where the command is to go out. And I think the reason why you don't have that before that is because it would have been futile. Why? Because Satan held the nations under his power and under his influence and his deception. Right? But here in this climactic scene, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he comes to me and says, okay, now all power and all authority in heaven and on earth now belongs to me. So now get out into all the nations. Plunder the kingdom, kingdoms of the enemy, and bring in what's mine. You ask me this picture of Satan being bound and restricted in some way. There's this glorious picture that now the gospel and the good news of the resurrection of Christ and the kingdom life that he's offering can now go out into all the nations unhindered. Right, Our missionaries that we support and we send around the world, or even the very fact that we here in America are here to celebrate the good news of the gospel, us Gentile folk, right? that's all because the strong man of the house has been bound. Or the old deceiver or the God of this world has been bound up and has been cast away in the victory of Christ so that the gospel can go forth unhindered. And we might hear it and we might be brought in and our missionaries can go out and share this great, great good news and good life. That's one really good news of this. Keep going through the passage. John says, And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their faith come to life. And they were seated on thrones, and they reign with Christ for this 
thousand year period of time. Right? And can you see how a church that was persecuted and suffering as a result of their faithful witness, what good news this would be? I don't know if you can remember all the way back to when Jesus is writing to the church in Smyrna in chapter 2. He says to them, hey, Satan's going to lead you into tribulation. He's going to cast some of you into prison for 10 days. He says, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. Not just for 10 days, but 10 times 10 times 10 years. Right? So what great news for the church that has sought to be faithful in their witness and their worship and has suffered for it. I'm hearing this great weapon that the enemy has to throw at them, death. All death can do is usher them into the presence of the king and enable them now to become participants in his reign. And actually, the only, you, you keep going, and the good news there is that it's not just the people who've suffered and died a martyr's death. It's for all those who didn't worship the beast and receive his mark, but have been have stayed faithful in their witness and worship to the Lamb. All these are He's seeing their souls coming to life in the courts of heaven and being seated on these thrones. I love the picture in the book of Revelation of the saints who've gone before us. The saints who have died in Christ, they're not just put out the pasture (laughs) in the courts of heaven. Hey, just go out there and hang out and someday this will all wrap up. Or they're not just enduring or enjoying retirement life, sipping Mai Tais on the shores of heaven, if they have Mai Tais. I don't know why. But they're not just doing that either, right? The, the, the picture of the saints in the book of Revelation is an active one. It's chapter 6 where they're gathered around at the foot of the, uh, of, the, of the altar, and they're echoing the cries of God's people all throughout the ages, crying out to God, How long, O God, faithful and true, until you judge and you avenge? And here in chapter 20, you have this picture of the saints who are seated on thrones, mind you, <laughs> and who are participating, not just in the resurrection of Jesus, but are participating in the reign of Jesus. Or they're participating somehow in the execution of God's purposes that the king, King Jesus, is executing throughout history. And what a neat picture to think of, of the people who have sat in these seats or have been a part of this church and have gone on to glory in that way. Right? You think of the Jordan family, right? What a different picture. What a glorious picture to think of Melissa raised spiritually to life in the courts of heaven, not just put out the pasture or not just whatever, but participating in the reign of Christ. You know, I think of loved ones. I think of my mother-in-law or my grandparents who've gone before. And I love the picture of them interceding, praying, how long, O Lord? And I love the picture of them reigning in some way with Christ over the affairs of his church and the affairs of history. Right? It's that picture. It's that glorious picture that you see in Hebrews 11. Or no, sorry, Hebrews 12, where the writer says to the church, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, right? those who have gone before us, since we are surrounded by them, let us cast off every weight that hinders, right? And let us look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our face, and run and run the race with endurance. Right? That's this glorious picture. But the worst Satan can throw at you is entrance into the company of the king and the seat on the thrones, participate in his reign. And then the last bit of good news uh, from the text. 
is at the end, Satan's let loose. <laughs> you say, how in the world is that good news? Well, without diving too deep into it, basically the good news is he's, he must be released, it says, so that he can fish out every last whiff of evil, every last whatever, person, individual, source, who wants nothing to do with God, wants nothing to do with his purposes, wants nothing to do with his church, but would rather align themselves with the dragon, would rather worship the dragon, would rather serve the dragon, would rather take up arms with the dragon against all of God's good and holy purposes. Right at the very end, all of this is going to be fished out so that it can be judged and removed from his creation. So like we say, humanity can be set free. So that creation can be set free. So that we can enter the glorious pictures in chapter 20 and 21. Behold, all things are being made new. Are you still nodding? <laughs> still with me? It's a loaded passage. It's a difficult passage. What we try to do is dive a little bit deeper to explain some of the complexities here. Hopefully I haven't made it worse for you. If I have, please come talk to me. I'd love to simplify it for you a little bit. Keep in mind the Big picture. I think it was my, it was one of my theology professors who said, you know, if you want to understand, if you're having trouble understanding the book of Revelation, go home and read it to your kids and they'll tell you what it's about. <laughs> For us, because we're so into and, you know, dissecting and picking out these pictures and trying to figure out how it all works, it's become a little bit more confusing. But the big picture is clear. Christ wins. And if you dive a little bit deeper, all you see is even more good news. More good news that should motivate us, that should inspire us to faithful endurance and faithful witness. And so, lastly, what do I, what do, I do with this? What, what's the takeaway? What's the application? So what? I'll say two things. One, to the church. Now is the day of opportunity. Seize the day. Right? Now is the day where, if you ask me, the strong man is bound. Where all authority under heaven and earth has shifted and now belongs to King Jesus. Therefore, now is the day where you can move out into the four corners of the earth or the four corners of your neighborhood, sharing with your life, sharing with your testimony, whatever it is, the incredible news, the resurrection of Christ and the inauguration of his kingdom, and invite people into that life, whether a young person, a teenager, in middle school or high school, Right? An environment that's increasingly growing dark and confusing. Man, you have this great opportunity to live as a faithful witness to the good news of Jesus. Or if you're a parent that stays at home and works with your kids or your family or whatever it is, man, you have this great opportunity to witness with your life and with your actions and with your speech this countercultural ethic of the kingdom and to lead your children in that. If you're someone who goes to work or whatever, right, you have this great opportunity to give witness with your life to this you know, host of people who are chasing after these counterfeit gods, thinking that they're going to find life and meaning. And Man, this great opportunity to give witness through your words, through your life, through your actions, the goodness of Christ. Or if you're an older individual who's entered into retirement years and you have a, a history of God proving himself faithful to you over the years, man, do you know how valuable that is and how needed that is? Share that. Share that with the church. Share that with the young people. Share that with your neighborhood. Give witness in your life to the goodness of Christ because now is the day of opportunity. And do it because the power of death and Hades is already... Oh, man, we didn't even get a chance to talk about this. 
No, we're, we're too late. <laughs> but, oh, but, uh, no, all right. No, uh, yeah, I'm gonna, all right, indulge me here. One last thing. You remember in chapter 1 where we're introduced to Jesus? This is so great. You're introduced to Jesus, and he's, man, he's got, you know, eyes of fire, and he's, you know, and he's, he's all decked out. And in his one hand, he's holding the stars, and that's a whole thing. But then in his other hand, you remember what he has? He's got keys. Remember where those keys are too? Death and Hades, right? And part of the, uh, the belief was that prior to his resurrection, you know who else had, who, who held, held those keys? Yes, right. Satan. That was part of the, you know, the, the belief in the ancient church, right? So in his resurrection and in his ascension to the right hand of the Father, where in chapter 1 now he is king and kings and lord of all the lords of the earth, well, what he also has now is the keys to death and Hades. And that's why John can see now the souls of those who have died in the Lord being set free from death and Hades and come to life in the courts of heaven. And because Jesus has the keys, death and Hades can't touch him. And because Satan is bound, Satan can't touch him. And what a great picture of that is that as well too. You press on in endurance knowing that as you have entrusted your life to Christ, he's got you. And the best that death can do is to usher you into the courts of heavens where you join the company of the saints triumphant in pleading before the throne and carrying out God's purposes. And death and Hades and Satan can't touch you. Don't make me do the MC Hammer dance up here. <laughs> All right, anyway, that was just another point. But you press on, it's the day of opportunity, and there's so much good news, there's so much hope for why you do that. And then if by chance you're here and you're curious about Christ and you wouldn't have necessarily considered yourself a Christian, but you're curious, man, kudos to you for being here. Kudos to you for sticking through this sermon on Revelation 20. The last image I would leave you with is the image in the close of the chapter where these two, are these two books. One book is a record of all the deeds done by men and women throughout the ages. Uh, the record, The books that you've... You are shamed by when they're opened up. <laughs> and then there's this book of life, which throughout the book of Revelation is also called the Lamb's book of life. In other words, it's the book of the deeds of the Lamb, and then all those who, whose names get put with the Lamb. Or in other words, it, this harkens back to the great news of the gospel, right? That this Jesus who was born into the world 2,000 years ago came to identify with humanity so that ultimately he could suffer and die as the lamb for you so that he could be the sacrificial lamb so that all of our failures, all of our muck, all of our sin and shame could be placed on him such that now when he comes, in chapter 19, you know, on this white horse, he's got a robe that's already sprinkled with his own blood, blood that he shed in atonement for you and for your sins. Right? And so this is the, the crazy news that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you come from, right? If you entrust your life to this king, his blood covers all that shame, all that sin, all that failure, all that resistance, and somehow his faithfulness and his perfect obedience and his perfect righteousness is counted to you such that you can have a name in his book. His is the only name that's supposed to be in that book. But somehow, in the miracle of God's love and mercy in the gospel, you entrust your life to him, 
and you get a name in his book. And I would say, that's the book you want to be in. And how do you do that? Again, you entrust your life to this, this king. You recognize, yeah, there's messed up, broken stuff in me. I have this tendency in me to participate with the darkness and all that is not right in the world. But thanks be to God that he has put forth a solution to that. And I'm going to entrust my life to this king as the only way I can get my name in that book. And then this revelation would say, you choose to follow the lamb wherever he goes. I'm going to invite you to do that. If you want to learn more about that, come see me. Come see anybody here in the church. We'd love to talk to you more about that. But for all of us, let's press on. It's the day of opportunity. Let's live as faithful worshipers and faithful witnesses of Christ. And let's follow that lamb wherever he goes until that great day comes. Amen? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.